Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us through your Holy Spirit so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and truly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And yet, some Scripture may put our belief in Paul's statement to the test. You've heard the text. This is a tough one. You aren't going to find it in a children's story Bible. You'll notice there is no children's bulletin for this passage. If it were made into a movie, it would not get a PG rating, and Focus on the Family would not recommend that you take the kids to see it. See if you can even keep track of all the ways the Ten Commandments are violated. A father fails to protect the honor of his daughter and puts his family at risk by delaying the fulfillment of his vow to the Lord. Vengeful brothers lie to commit murder and robbery, and they profane the worship and the covenant sign of the Lord in the process. A young woman dishonors her father and mother and needlessly puts herself in danger. A pagan man covets a young woman that he should not have and forces her into sexual immorality. No one in the passage is completely blameless. And when the chapter ends... There's almost no light of resolution or redemption. Not a single reference is even made to the Lord in the entire chapter. But this is God's word for us. So it is a good gift. We can be taught, reproved, corrected, and trained in righteousness, even as we consider Genesis 34. John Salhammer sums up the purpose of the passage like this. The story carries along the theme that runs so clearly through the Jacob narratives. Namely, that God works through, and often in spite of, the limited self-serving plans of human beings. Moses' purpose is not to approve these human plans and schemes, but to show how God, in his sovereign grace, could still achieve his purpose through them. Through this narrative, we can learn what we are to believe about God and the duty that God requires of us, especially seeing his sovereign grace to sinners, and especially seeing how each of these figures falls short of his righteous standard. As we proceed, we need to recognize that our culture is hypersexualized. So we've lost our sensitivity to true biblical honor and shame surrounding the Lord's standards for sexual purity. So that can make scripture's language regarding sexual sin and marriage seem entirely foreign to our ears. And what's more, this, this psychologized and sexualized turn in our culture has left us largely incapable of grappling with the consequences of the so-called sexual liberation movement. And 
lets us incapable of properly handling allegations and instances of sexual abuse. On top of this, sexual abuse is so prevalent in our age that I doubt there is a person in here who has not either been a victim or has a close relationship with someone who has been a victim of this type of sin. So please know, that reality breaks my heart and it infuriates me. But please also know that it stirs up the perfectly righteous wrath of a holy God who is far angrier at sin than you or I could. Because this reality means that so many of you may be very sensitive to this topic, I ask you to hang with me to the end. My request is that you please listen to everything I say. And then once I'm done, you can be angry with me. We'll see that there is hope even for those who have been wronged in the same way as Dinah, but that the hope is not in taking angry vengeance. And while Moses' wording shows that Dinah indeed did do something wrong and she needlessly endangered herself, and that there are applications that we can make accordingly regarding our spiritual lives, the scripture is equally clear that the blame for what was done to Dinah fell on her attacker. Shechem saw and took and victimized Dinah. What happened to her was not her fault. Dinah did something wrong, and Dinah was severely wronged. Both of those things can be true. And lastly, in what's already too long of an introduction, let me say that we need to properly approach this passage of Scripture. If we simply come to it looking for guidelines on setting up civil governments, and the responses we should have to specific crimes, we will miss the point. If we merely approach the, these sordid events trying to formulate a theory about what constitutes a just war, we will not get the benefit that the Lord has for us here in this world. This passage may inform biblical thinking about those topics, but it is not mainly about them. Instead, it is about what it means to live as the chosen people of God in a world wrecked by sin. And it is about how the Lord of all works out his sovereign plan in the middle of darkness and wickedness for his own glory and the good of his chosen people. Indeed, the, the theme that we have seen throughout Genesis, we see again in this passage. How the Lord himself preserves the line of the seed of the woman from being destroyed by the seed of the serpents. Ultimately, like all the law and the prophets, our text is about the Lord Jesus and his person and work. So may God help us so that we may respond appropriately, obeying his commands, trembling at his threatenings, and embracing his promises for this life and the one to come. For the outline, I split it into two parts. Four wrongs, and we'll look at each of those in turn, and then wrongs made right. 
is you can look for the words for you to listen to in their normal place. So let's consider the four wrongs we find here. And really it's more than four wrongs, but I categorize them together to make four. Starting with Jacob and the neglect of a father. And we start off where we left off last week. Jacob was finally free, free from Laban's oppression, free from the anger of Esau that had hung over him for 20 years. He's at peace with his brother. He's on the border of the promised land. But rather than hasten on to Bethel and fulfill his vow to worship the Lord there, in light of all the faithfulness that he had been shown, Jacob compromised. He spent some time at Sukkot, just outside the promised land, recuperating and rebuilding his flocks. And then he settled right outside the city of Shechem, stopping a mere one day's journey north of Bethel. He had rightly refused to be unequally yoked with his brother Esau and travel to Seir. But now he becomes too comfortable with the wicked inhabitants of the land promised to him and to his offspring. We'll find out next week that he was apparently even aware of idolatry being practiced in his own camp. But at this point refused to put an end to it. But this was just the beginning of is falling short as a spiritual head of his household. He also specifically neglected to care for his daughter. It's not by accident that Moses reminds us who Dinah's mother was. Leah, the hated wife. Dinah was able to leave the camp and enter the town without anybody stopping her or chasing after her to ensure that she was safe. That's ultimately her father's responsibility. And then when the man who violated his daughter came to make a deal, Jacob left the negotiation up to his sons. And then, hearing their suggestion, he either was deceived, like the two Hivite men, and yet neglected to point out that intermarriage was not a viable option, or else he failed to step in and stop the violence before it escalated. When he finally speaks for the first time in Genesis 34, he correctly rebukes his sons for their crime, but he does it entirely based on what the consequences might mean for him. Using the singular first person pronoun seven times in verse 30. He seems entirely disinterested with the safety and honor of his daughter, and he's completely consumed with his own security, even eventually failing to trust the Lord who had thus far kept him safe, had promised not to leave him. Our larger catechism question and answer 130 teaches us that the sins of superiors, those who are in positions of authority, include, among other things, Refusing to correct those in their care. Neglecting to provide and to protect and to provide for them physically and spiritually. Seeking their own glory, their own ease, their own profit, profit or their own pleasure. And carelessly exposing or leaving those in their care to wrong, temptation, and danger. 
Jacob does not bear the weight of what Shechem did to Dinah, nor what his sons did to the city. But he does bear the weight of his sins that paved a smooth path for everybody to get there. Everything else in this chapter is downstream from his failures to exercise spiritual leadership in his home. And here we begin to feel that tension of life in a fallen world. We seek to be obedient to the way the Lord has directed us, raising our children in the faith. We trust that he will bless our efforts. But ultimately, we leave all things to the wise, free, and holy acts of his decrees in creation and providence. But in that comfort, let us not become antinomian, refusing to obey what he has commanded us. But reflect on those duties you're called to as a parent, especially you fathers. Because the way the Lord typically works is by our fulfilling our duties as parents, becoming the means he uses to guide and protect the children he has given us. Those in authority will answer to the Lord for their faithfulness in executing it. And everything I've said regarding uh, parents applies just as well to other authorities, especially officers in the Lord Jesus' church. Not many of you should be teachers, Scripture says, because we will be judged more strictly. Those who have been given the charge to care for Christ's sheep will give an account to the great shepherd for the souls that are placed under our watch. Joyful, it's a fearful task. But let us also be abundantly careful. It is often easy to misread Proverbs as, they, as if they are covenant promises. And we fall into an all-too-common trap, concluding that doing the quote-unquote right things as a parent will only and always result in perfect holiness and security and bliss for our children. And that if anything bad happens, it must be because the parents fail. That is far too naive a view of sin. Don't believe the lie that following some expert's parenting principles is any guarantee that sin and its consequences will not touch your family. There are no perfect parents, and there are no perfect children. And this is no perfect world. As we'll see from the rest of Genesis, Jacob's children are in just as much danger from one another as they are from the people out there. Partially because of Jacob's failures as a father, and partially because the heart of every man, woman, boy, and girl is desperately wicked and capable of incredible evil. Regardless of how well they might have been raised. So if you sought to be faithful as a Christian parent. Training your children the way they should go. And your children have strayed into sin. Or they have been harmed by the sin of others. Please hear me. Their sin and their suffering is not your fault. 
you are not Jesus. You are not strong enough, wise enough, or holy enough to save them and preserve them. Where you have fallen short as a parent, repent and seek forgiveness and grow in sanctification. Do not carry the guilt and the shame of others for them. Carry all of that weight and lay it on the strong, strong shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone can bear it. He alone can deliver you from it. So our first look is at a neglectful father. But he's not the only one doing wrong. Flowing directly out of the neglect of Jacob is the indiscretion of a daughter. Of a daughter. And Dinah's part that she plays in this chapter is quite brief, but it shows that she learned from her dad. She placed herself in needless danger. She went out, the text says, which flaunted not only cultural norms and wisdom as an unaccompanied young woman, but she left the safety of Jacob's tents to walk in a city of Canaanites. You remember those people? Who were so devoted to their sin that the Lord said he would dispossess them from the land and give it to his chosen people. And Moses writes that the purpose of her going out was to see the women of the land. She wasn't trying to meet the neighborhood girls so she could make friends and share the good news with them. She was inquiring into their customs, their way of life, investigating to see... Perhaps the, the Hivite life is more enjoyable than the Israelite. Unless we think that meeting the women in Shechem City ought to have been a safe prospect. Did the description of them sound familiar? The phrase Moses uses, the women of the land. It's the same way he earlier described the Canaanite wives of Esau, whose sinfulness was unbearable to Rebekah. Total depravity is not restricted to the male sex. The Hivite women were not suitable examples for Jacob's daughter to model herself after. But I think the best way to grasp the full import of Dinah's situation is to remember when we're reading this, this narrative, we're not merely thinking in terms of one family over against dangerous city dwellers. No, this passage is about the visible church of God on earth, the family of the heir of Abraham's promise, the seed of the woman, and a group of those in the spiritual line of the serpents. Anytime that the children of God leave the shelter of the church of God, founded on God's word, rightly administer obedience to God's commands, anytime they leave that and they seek out new and exciting experiences in temptation or worldly wisdom or false doctrine they're walking in Dinah's footsteps and they not only put their bodies in danger but their souls this is a warning for all of us especially you covenant children of the church you might feel like life in the church or in your parents' household is oppressive or boring. But your parents and 
pastors and elders of this church want what's best for you because we love you. So we want to see you protected from the enemy of your souls. Don't follow the temptation to leave Jesus and his church to, tr to chase some new and thrilling way of living. Don't abandon the truth of God's word to chase the world's easy words that scratch itching ears. Instead, remain in the safety that he has provided for you, children, in his church and with godly parents. Honor them so that it may go well with you. Jacob's neglect paved, paved the path to danger, and Dinah willingly walked along it. Her wrong was tiny compared to what was waiting for her in the city. There she became a victim of the crimes of sinners. Dinah was truly a victim. She wasn't asking for Shechem to take advantage of her. What happened to her was not her fault. She was a vulnerable foreign girl in the city, most likely in her mid-teens, marriageable age in that culture, but completely defenseless against an adult man. The way Moses describes Shechem's actions ought to sound vaguely familiar. He saw, he took, he abused, and the result was shame and humiliation. The language is remarkably similar to how Moses recorded Eve's sin in the garden in chapter 3, as well as the actions of those sons of God with the daughters of man in chapter 6. The first of those sins ended with exile from the garden and the fall of the entire human race, while the latter led to the flooding of the entire earth. So we ought to see this sin of Shechem as very wicked and very serious. The way Moses writes, we are supposed to have the same emotional response as her brothers. The word he uses there for them being grieved in verse 7 is the same term that he had earlier used for the, the Lord's response to the world wrecked by sin in Genesis 6.6. 6. And then Moses adds a rare note of commentary in the narrative, saying that this was an outrageous thing that must not be done. And one commentary puts it, Moses emphasizes that this particular type of crime is especially reprehensible. And in the words of Gordon Wenham, the narrator, the reader, and the sons are expected to agree, to agree that Shechem's act was a disgrace. It is proper to feel righteous indignation at the evil actions of wicked man. And it is especially proper to be angry at sins that harm and oppress weak and vulnerable people. That is a proper reaction. Shechem's act was not an instance of boys being boys. It was despicable and shameful and worthy of hatred. So let me say to you, you have been a victim of this type of sin. What is done to you is not your fault. The one who sinned against you is fully responsible.
don't have to carry the guilt and the shame of what was done to you. You don't have to carry the burden alone. Please find a wise, trusted Christian brother or sister who will pick up that weight and help you carry it to the cross of Christ, where you will be free of it. And pastors and your elders love you, and we will willingly walk every step of the way with you, and even if necessary, to help you pursue justice. Please remember you can always come to one of us with anything so that we can minister to you through word and prayer, whatever reason. Don't stay in the darkness where other people stand wide awake, but come into the light. But the initial lust that drove Shechem's actions didn't go away. Shechem wanted Dinah as his wife. So he spoke tenderly to her, trying to win her over. But the demand that he makes of his father, I think, demonstrates his love was not paired with respect for her. Gordon Wenham explains, not only does he use the bluntest form of the imperative without even a please, but he describes Dinah in the Hebrew rather disparagingly as this child. Look at this child. For Shechem, Dinah is not a gift to be cherished, but an object to possess. As Richard Belcher writes, Shechem wants to possess what he had wrongfully taken. However, there is no hint of remorse for doing something wrong or any evidence of repentance. So Shechem and his dad call for a meeting with Jacob's clan. They're going to offer a proposition of marriage. And you'll notice what is conveniently left out in all of the conversations, what Shechem has done. And in their offer, the whole covenant of grace is put at risk. The invitation they give is for, for Jacob's family to completely lose their identity as the set-apart people of God and go all the way in becoming Canaanites as they intermarry. And the offer... Certainly must have been tempting. There's guarantees of safety anywhere they went in the land, possession of property, both a bride price to them and a bridal gift to Dinah at whatever cost they wanted to choose. Which, by the way, would have been the proper way of resolving a crime of this sort in that culture, and even in God's law given at Sinai. So Shechem's entering this discussion with at least some level of good faith. There are a few problems with this offer, though. First, everything that Hamor offers to Jacob regarding land and wealth already belongs to Jacob in the promise given to him and to his father and to his grandfather. Hamor is offering your best life now in exchange for compromising holiness and being absorbed into the Hivite people. Where the seed of the serpent had failed to eradicate the seed of promise by violence, now he tries to eradicate him through diluting the covenant line. Hamor echoes Satan's smooth words when that angel of light offered to Christ the kingdoms of the world for one simple act of disobedience. When all of that and more was to be Christ's, through his obedient suffering. This proposal must be turned down. 
And another problem we have with this negotiation is that the Shechemites have an ace up their sleeve. We don't see it till near the end of the chapter, verse 26. But Dinah is still locked up at Shechem's house, which you can imagine puts Jacob's family in a position that makes refusing the marriage pretty, preca pretty precarious. Which, by the way, is further evidence, I think, that she was not truly loved by her attacker. But she was a pawn in the game of Shechem's life. And then the final problem with this proposition, we don't find out until the Hivite men return to persuade their kinsmen to undergo elective surgery. They think that the result of this agreement would be that everything that belongs to the people of God would become the possession of this evil pagan tribe. And the last time that we heard about becoming one people in the book of Genesis was at the Tower of Babel. And the goal here is the same. The extermination of the glory of God's grace and the exaltation of the glory of sinful man. So before we move to the final and actually the greatest wrong in the chapter, let's take two applications from the crimes of these sinners. First, there's a reason that Scripture commands us to flee sexual temptation. It's the one sin committed against one's own body. And it nearly always includes multiple other entangling dangers and sorrows. So Christian, put this sin to death in your heart and mind so you don't have to fight it in your body. Get as far away from that temptation as you can. Lust and pornography are snares that will spiritually kill you. And they objectify and they demean other image bearers of God in the same way that Shechem did to God. They're a different degree of sin, not a different category. Especially in the culture where we live, and especially you men and boys, be watchful. Do not give an inch to this sin. And then the broader application from this section. The world's offer of compromise with the people of God is not new. When the enemies of God seek partnership with the offer of temporal peace and prosperity, it can only result in our loss of identity as God's holy people. And the forfeiture of our blessing of eternal peace and prosperity. If the world cannot choke out the people of God, it will try to defeat us through a thousand tiny compromises. So may we continue to stand firm in God's word, in our eternal hope. And so resist the temptation to compromise with sin and look more like the world for temporary So we finally come to the response of Jacob's sons and the fourth wrong, violence of brothers. In the wider scope of Genesis, Jacob's story is wrapping up and the remainder of the book will be primarily focused on the lives of his sons. So taking the lead at the negotiating table, Dinah's brothers, unlike Jacob, 
They have the proper indignation at Shechem's crime. And they also give the correct response to the marriage offer. It would be improper to give a daughter of Israel to an uncircumcised pagan man. The Hivites must take on the sign of the covenant of grace if they want to become one people with Jacob and his kin. But, stop me if you've heard this before, they were being deceitful. As Victor Hamilton writes, one more time we encounter an instance of deception in Genesis. Jacob imitates his father, who imitated his father, and now Jacob's sons imitate their father. And as Richard Belcher points out, the approach of deception short circuits an honorable outcome. And while Abraham and Isaac had lied to pagan princes in fearful efforts to protect life, Jacob's sons lie to the pagan princes to establish a pretense so they can wrathfully take life. And they not only lie in order to murder, they compound their sin by painting the veneer of religion onto their scheme. They're not only breaking the ninth and the sixth commandments, but they also break the third. They profane God's holy name by utilizing the covenant sign of circumcision. As a means to, means to gain an upper hand in perpetrating the crimes. So listen to John Calvin's comments. What they said was true if they said it sincerely. But they falsely used the sacred name of God as a pretext. Their double profanation of that name proves them to be doubly sacrilegious. They cared nothing about circumcision. But were intent on this one thing. How they might crush the miserable men in a state of weakness. So Shechem eagerly agrees to the terms. And he, he and his father are even able to persuade all the other men in town to join them in hopes of eventually growing their wealth through intermarrying with the Israelites. But on the third day, when the soreness of the procedure reached its heights, Simeon and Levi took their revenge, killing every single male in town. And then the brothers joined in. Plundering everything they could get their hands on. Taking the women and the children captive. Their vengeance was swift and total and reprehensible. Matthew Henry says of it, Simeon and Levi were most unrighteous. Those who act wickedly under a pretext of religion are the worst enemies of the truth. And harden the hearts of many to destruction. The crimes of others form no excuse for us. Calvin writes, Simeon and Levi were therefore impelled, not so much by the common reproach brought upon the holy and elect race, according to their recent boasts, as by a sense of the infamy, infamy brought upon themselves. However, there is no reader who does not readily perceive how dreadful and execrable was this crime. Their actions were disproportionate to shepherds. Their greed in plundering the possessions undermine their righteous indignation. And in the name of justice for a vulnerable young woman, they victimized a whole city of women and children. What was physically done to Dinah, they now figuratively, figuratively do to the town. And these sons of Israel behave more like Esau or the Canaanites than they do like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their pretend outrage 
that the shame brought on their sister was really about their own personal honor. And they seek vindication through seeing and seizing whatever they want. They repay evil with exponential evil. And while Jacob's rebuke at the end of this chapter is self-serving, he would not forget the sin. Speaking more properly about it at the end of his life in Genesis 49. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their wolfness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger. For it is fierce and their wrath for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And this passage ends, it seems, as hopelessly as it began. With Jacob offering a lame reproof and the brothers a defiant answer to their father. Gordon Wenham characterizes Jacob's words this way. Here, despite his experiences at the Yabbok and his successful reunion with Esau, he's showing the same abject fear as before. Of course, fear is natural in such a situation, but the reasons Jacob gives for damning his sons betray him. He does not condemn them for the massacre, for abusing the right of circumcision, or even for breach of contract. Rather, he protests that the consequences of their action have made him unpopular. Nor does he seem worried by his daughter's rape or the prospect of intermarriage with the Canaanites. He is only concerned for his own sin. But the brother's response is more self-justifying than it is righteous. Victor Hamilton states, Jacob protests the excesses of their retaliation, but his sons defend their action as noble. A vigilante mentality always insists that the answer to violence is more violence. So at the end, we're left to conclude with Derek Kidner, the appeaser and the avengers, mutually exasperated and swayed respectively by fear and fury, were perhaps equidistant from justice. They exemplify two perennial but sterile reactions to you. Brothers and sisters, we must learn in our anger not to sin. The Lord has given direction in his word for how justice is to be pursued interpersonally, in the civil realm, and within the courts of the church. We have not been granted the right to be judge, jury, and executioner of every crime. Vengeance is not justice. And we will not make things right by pursuing revenge. Like Jacob's sons, we must beware, even in the face of injustice, lest in exacting revenge we act more sinfully than the one who instigated the evil in the first place. We also must accept the reality that this side of the return of Christ in glory to judge the living and the dead, all justice will be at best imperfect. But we can entrust ourselves to his righteous judgment. Because he claims vengeance as his rights. We heard it in the New Testament reading. The Lord alone can pour out righteous wrath. 
And we can be certain that every wrong will be made right, either through the mediation of Christ as Savior, or in his punishing the unrepentant wicked in his holy anger and sin. So as we leave this scene, you may be asking, I keep finding myself asking, is there any way, is there any way that we can see wrongs made rights? Is there any hope or good news to be had at all? And there is. But we have to move beyond Shechem to see it. There's a taste of it in the very next verse. Genesis 35, 1 reads, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. At the end of this stay at Shechem, which lasted far too long, at the end of the sins of everybody in Jacob's household, the Lord still remained faithful to his covenants. He still showed mercy to the sinners he had claimed as his own people. God's grace continued to cover all of Jacob's sins. So even with the trail of blood left at Shechem, even though he had failed to fulfill his word, the Lord still called him to return. Call him to enter into God's holy presence in worship. Every sin is ultimately an affront to the perfect holiness of God. So he alone has the right to exact justice in his anger. The Lord did not simply overlook the sins of Jacob and his sons. No, the reason that he can take a situation where every, everything and everyone is wrong and somehow make it right. Because in his perfect wisdom and in his power, our Heavenly Father sent his Son to experience the vengeance that our sins deserve. There is no condemnation and no wrath for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has forgiven all our sins. Even sexual abuse, even murder, are not unpardonable by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's even good news for those who have suffered injustice. The God who forgives our sins for the sake of Christ will one day pour out his righteous anger on those who harm his children. And so, resting on his sovereign mercy toward us and his promise to wipe every tear out of our eyes, we can join our, vote, our voice as we wait with the saints who are under his altar, saying, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? And we can await that day in hope, saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The scandalous grace of our merciful Lord and the blessed hope of his glorious coming are our anchors in every situation. Our Father has fulfilled all his promises 
through his son Jesus. So let us look fully to him in faith in the midst of a dark and a dangerous world looking for the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come where only light and peace remain.